0: Welcome to episode one of my so far unnamed podcast. names are being tossed around. We'll figure it out at a later point. Um, I wanted to introduce my guests. Uh, First, we have Dr. Lacey Bagley. Do you want to say hello?
1: Hi.
0: Um, Dr. Bagley is the owner and clinical director of Celebrate Therapy in Provo, Utah. She's also the founder of Queer Mormon Therapists, an online directory of Queer Mormon Therapists. She received a PhD in marriage and family therapy from Brigham Young University and a master's in the same from the University of Southern Mississippi. She's currently a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Utah and has six years of, ins- of experience working as a therapist and some of her specialties include LGBTQIA individuals, couples, polyamorous networks and families, and pre to early uh, teenage children and their families diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, or ADD, or struggle with social interactions and emotional regulation. Um, Dr. Bradford, I don't know you in a professional capacity. I know you um, more personally. through my church congregation and my wife. I do know Dr. Cooper as my professor, so I'm much more used to referring to him as doctor. <laughs> and my wife and I refer to you in our home as Lacey. So I, I really am going to try to refer to you as Dr. Bagley because you deserve that in this podcast.
1: Dr. Lacey works too. Dr. Lacey, okay. I yeah, w- I'll, try to ke- I'll try to keep <laughs> the
0: doctor in there. And you can call me professor. If that- uh, professor, okay. That'll, yeah, that'll just throw me off on all angles. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then we also have Chloe Uh, Chloe is a a clinician at uh, Celebrate Therapy. Um, Chloe, do you want to say hi? Hello. Um, And then we also have uh, Dr. Cooper here. Dr. Glenn Cooper uh, is currently a faculty member in the College of Humanities here at Brigham Young University, specializing in history and philosophy. He received a Ph.D. in the history of Islamic science from Columbia University and two master's degrees from Columbia as well. Also, he originally had a foundation in mathematical physics before pivoting, after his undergraduate to be a historian of science, so he's uniquely qualified to understand not just the history of science, but a lot of the actual science as well. Um, Dr. Cooper, I was reviewing your education, honors, awards, and publications. There's a lot. Are there any that you wanted to highlight that you're particularly proud of? I didn't know what to say.
2: Oh, (laughs) well, I'm particularly uh, happy with the time I got to spend in Berlin a couple of years ago and to enjoy the... Wonderfully stimulating intellectual climate of that city, and the cultural possibilities that were there. I was actually there when COVID broke out, and I had to flee. Oh, <laughs> uh, that oh, put that on my list of life's adventures. Yeah. <laughs> on
0: your on your CV.
2: Yeah, All
1: as right. many have in the past. <laughs> <Also> <laughs> that's, right, that's right. Fled from Berlin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: Um, so today. Uh, The topic that we're uh, going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be comparing the trial of Galileo um, that occurred uh, when the Catholic Church uh, more or less put Galileo on trial um, for uh, his support of the Copernican view of the universe, which uh, was uh, heliocentric, meaning that the solar system, the universe, revolved around the sun. Um, And we're going to be comparing that to the modern LDS Church and its LGBTQ plus members. as a tentative title uh, for the podcast, uh, I'm a fan of puns. So, the Trial of DeLileo. If uh, if everyone approves, then we can stamp that on there. <laughs> um, I liked it both because it, I mean, the letters matched up, but it also kind of gets across the point of what we're talking about. So,
1: approved. Oh. Yeah, awesome. Very approved. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I like <laughs> puns. <laughs>
0: I knew you would like it, Doctor Cooper. Um, all right. So to start out. Um I wanted to start with a quote uh, from Stephen Hawking. Uh, the quote is Galileo perhaps more than any other single person was responsible for the birth of modern science. Um, we talked about this quote uh, in our class last semester with Dr. Cooper uh, and in the context of, Hawking is an avid atheist um, he's even be anti-institutional religion as well um, and so the meaning behind this quote I this may not be exactly what he was saying, but I think he would agree with the following statement. That the birth of modern science came about because Galileo, a progressive, open-minded scientific searcher of truth, stood up against the blind, stubborn conservatism of organized religion. Um, and uh, one of the points that we talked about last semester in our class was that the trial of Galileo was much more nuanced than this. Um, and so. Uh, I disagree with the statement, I think Dr. Cooper would too. Dr. Cooper, I'd love for you to expand uh, a little here for us about why is the Trial of Galileo more nuanced than that sort of statement would have us believe? And then we'll pivot. I'll have a question for you guys after that.
2: Well, uh, as we demonstrated in detail in our, ac- our in-class activity, the Trial of Galileo, uh, there were numerous uh, factions involved in, uh, in the struggle. Uh, over the issue of w- whether Copernicanism w- would be compatible with the church or not, and Galileo as a figure. Uh, you had supporters among high churchmen of the new ideas, as well as enemies of the new ideas, and in, among scientists, you found the same sort of spectrum. And uh, really, what there was more at stake in the trial of Galileo uh, besides. Science versus religion. It was an issue of power. And who has the authority to, um, who has the authority to pronounce church doctrine? Uh, Galileo was not a, a trained theologian. Galileo didn't have. He wasn't even a philosopher in the eyes of the times. He was a, just a mathematician. Yet he was uh, presuming to make all kinds of presu- uh, all kinds of statements about cosmology. Uh, and that was offensive to people who had had the credentials, uh, and he wasn't a very tactful individual either. Um, if he had been more tactful and been more diplomatic, he had supporters as high as the Pope, who might have uh, been able to shepherd in the new ideas uh, in a much more smooth way. And so. Uh, when we look at the struggle between s- science and religion, quote unquote, in the in the era of Galileo, we have to look at personalities, we have to look at social classes, we have to look at uh, new ideas, uh, a whole lot of things that are normally ignored. <coughs> awesome. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. Um,
0: So the idea that we talked a lot about last semester is is that this trial, is not a battle between religion and science, but it's a complex and nuanced event riddled with scientific uncertainty, honest seekers of truth on both sides. This is the atmosphere that it was back then. Um, Now I want to pivot um, and now talk a little bit about the modern LDS church and LGBTQ issues. Um, I think that most people that um, aren't Extreme on either side of the issue, which I think is most most of us. When I extreme, I mean like you either want to tear down the church or like whip out your muskets and start defending the church. <laughs> you know what I mean by those two extremes. Yes. Except for people in those two extremes, I think a lot of people understand there's a lot of varied opinions, um, a lot of like a spectrum of, of of opinions, lots of different groups involved here. Um, uh, Chloe and Dr. Lacy, um, what are your thoughts on On the same comparison as far as uh the nuance of of these issues in our modern times
1: well you're exactly correct there's a whole lot of nuance um and a variety of perspectives and it also depends on kind of like your buy-in and your experience um as either a queer individual or as someone who is like a more conservative member of the church that maybe has limited experience and exposure to the queer community. So I think Mm -hmm. you're correct on that front. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think where we're at currently, um, there are individuals in the community that stand out like Galileo's do, Mm -hmm. where they are okay being a little more brash, right? Yeah. Or maybe even if they know it or not, yeah. <laughs> they're not as <laughs> self-aware or really self-aware yeah. to like walk into the space and be unabashedly themselves because they understand that that is maybe what's needed for people to see them and to see their experience mm-hmm. and to hear them. And um, so you do have people like Galileo and those people are being ostracized, ostracized by the church as well and or by the queer community, right? Depending on what their stance is.
0: I mean, imagine someone, um, uh, I'm I'm sure you know who Ben Shalati is. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: He's someone that uh, uh, tries to remain a very faithful member of the church. At the same time, he's very outspoken uh, for the queer community. I mean, I could imagine, I don't know him personally, but I could imagine that he may be ostracized a little bit in both in both communities, ostracized by uh, the queer community that may want him to do more um, or ostracized by the church community that may want him to do less. I don't know. I, I'm just yeah, Absolutely. Here, I mean,
1: we have lots of names, right? So we yeah. have Ben Chilatti, Charlie Bird. Yeah. And then on the other front, you have someone like Kate Maurer, who is also running a podcast, right, called The Queer, mm-hmm. leading a movement of queer women mm-hmm. and um, other members of the church, but especially queer women, people who are intersex and gender queer, into this space of, like, our voices, our experiences matter, too, yeah. right? So, you know, people like that who are trying to stay in the church, trying to make a difference, but are seen as, like, too outspoken, but also who are maybe not seen as outspoken enough by the queer community. Yeah,
0: that would be, I think, a really difficult place to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I mean, uh, I don't want to equate uh, the experience of um, a day member of the church exactly with Galileo, because it's different. <laughs> There's lots of different things going on. Um, uh, but I can imagine that Galileo probably felt... Um, in a similar situation, that maybe he was too much for some communities and not enough for other communities. Yeah. Um, the reason that this whole topic came out, this c- comparison cam- came about, um, last semester he mentioned we did an activity with the Trial of Galileo. And what it was was a reenactment. We reenacted the Trial of Galileo for like, I don't know, three weeks in the class <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of us were assigned a different part. And the job was really like, you got to get in character, Figure out what it's like to be back during the trial of Galileo, um, and present your part of the thing. There were different times we had to give speeches and stuff like that. Um, and during the entire trial, I was really trying to place myself in in that position. Like, what would it have been to be like back then, um, at the time of Galileo? And I, I kind of had this aha moment where I felt like I feel like it's kind of what it's like to be now in the church. And uh, where the number one emotion, I think that, uh, or uh, not number one, um, the most common emotion amongst all people in the church right now on these issues is confusion, I think. Um, (coughs) And what I mean by that is uh, there are certainly uh, more uh, painful emotions than confusion that have been felt by LGBTQ members of the church. But I mean for... um, non-LGBTQ members, for conservatives, for progressives, for everyone, I think confusion is common. Um, and I think that was a common thing back then as well. Um, thoughts <laughs> on that? <coughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I am.
2: <laughs> well, if I could, if we could go historically. Yeah, yeah. Start with me and then yeah. go to you guys. <coughs> there <coughs> there was a large amount of confusion during the time of Galileo uh, about the status of heaven and the placement of the earth. Um, And insofar as these ideas um, seeped down into the ordinary people, because normally we're talking about the trial of Galileo and the conflict uh, between church and the high-level intellectuals, but ordinary people when they got wind of of these discussions, uh, many of them became anxious about the status of earth because earth had been at the center in their cosmology for forever. And heaven was clearly defined as being straight up. Uh, If you displace earth, you displace, you literally physically displace man from being the center of the cosmos and the center of God's concern. So in the 21st century, I think the the religious world, at least in the Judeo-Christian tradition, is still suffering the effects of this displacement, uh, because you know, where where is God? Where is Earth if it's not the center of God's concern? And
1: yeah, and I think we could bring it into this example by saying <coughs> we're centered on the nuclear family, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so where where is God, where is the church, what is the role of the church, what is the, what is the role of God if the nuclear family is not husband, wife, children, right? Mm-hmm. If it is same-gender partners, same-sex partners, if it is multiple partners, right, then there's this confusion about like, whoa, 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 that's not the central nuclear nuclear family that we've been told is approved by God and is central to his plan. So if it's not that, then what?
0: And if you think about our whole, um, a lot of our doctrine rotates around the eternal family um, and around the temple and temple marriages. Um, and so um, if you displace that, I see it very similar as displacing uh, earth from being the center of the universe. You're displacing the eternal fami- family from being the center, or at least what we thought was the eternal family. And um, what we may learn is different. What we, uh, I mean, it's a displacement <laughs> of of those things. Chloe, do you have any thoughts?
3: Yeah, and I would say that like a lot of confusion in that regard, like what Dr. Lacey's talking about comes from, I think, more people being out and more people being open with their identities because now we have to really face that, I guess, fact of like people are born this way And I think, like, a lot of members of the church are meeting more people who are out with their sexual orientation, their gender identity, um, their, like, relationship structures that is different from this nuclear family that we've always been taught about. So there brings confusion for people who are in the church because they don't know how to place that within this context of what they've been taught. And then people who are queer, who know that these things are, like, unchanging in themselves and like where do they also fit within this larger like structure that is created
0: yeah um where is a place for them (laughs) for sure um i'm really glad that you brought um up the idea that we now know that uh, people can be born this way it can be an unchanging part of them it's not necessarily a choice that they make um this was one of the this is kind of one of the comparisons that i made the comparison that i made i wrote an essay about this uh, last semester and one of the comparisons that i made in that was um, one there was a lengthy tradition established tradition of scientific thought and then a shift um, a a revolution a scientific revolution to say where um, the whole paradigm of thought had to be changed Um, and uh, i don't know if you ever read the book um, *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions* by Thomas Kuhn? It's awesome. Uh, if you have it, it's probably really dry for you. <laughs> I don't know if you'd be that interested, but for a historian of science, have you
2: ever heard of the term "paradigm shift"? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes from there. That's how influential Excellent. the book was yeah. in fields outside of science. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that he
0: talks about is that science goes through these periods where we have an accepted paradigm. And then for some reason that paradigm, uh, there start to be more anomalies and enough anomalies ac- um, accrue that the paradigm doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to have a revolution, um, meaning you tear down the old paradigm and you create a new paradigm that can better account for those anomalies. Um, it also introduces a new set of problems to think about as well. Um, but we saw it with the Copernican P- the revolution where the old paradigm was Um, Aristotelian uh, physics and dynamics Um, things like the four elements being fire water earth and air Uh, the earth being at the center of the universe that wasn't working anymore because we saw uh, they they saw that then a lot of anomalies acquired they're just the data wasn't fitting this model anymore because they were getting better instruments and then they had to forget the old model and accept a new model of uh, a heliocentric universe um, Newton came about a hundred years after Galileo to provide the physics that was underlying all of this and um, one thing Kuhn points out in this book is that the two uh, paradigms they were both scientific for their times um, but now if you were to have try to have um, them communicate with each other they wouldn't even be able to understand each other they just they're speaking such different languages that hmm. they don't even it, it doesn't match up <laughs> they, they can't understand each other and um, And I think we've seen a similar revolution um, in the understanding of sexuality. I mean, we call it the sexual revolution um, that occurred in like the 1960s and 1970s, that there was an established paradigm of, um, maybe not in all cultures, but in in Christian culture for the last 2,000 years in the West, at least, there was um, an established paradigm of uh, binary gender um, and heterosexuality. And that homosexuality was uh, a deviance um uh and perhaps a choice uh um as well, and then the sexual re- revolution, starting with people like Kinsey and others that were starting to really think about those things realized that there's enough I apologize for using the word anomalies, but I'm trying to use uh,
1: diversity yeah Is it yeah um, diversity
0: yeah. yeah, enough diversity, um but things that didn't fit the model <laughs> right mm-hmm. um people that didn't fit the model, not things um uh that we had to. We need to create a new paradigm, have a revolution, create a new paradigm where we can start to think about these things.
1: Yeah, and we're in one now again with gender. Yeah, so we're in this moment of gender revolution to say, yes, there are people who are assigned male at birth and female at birth, and everywhere in between and everywhere outside of that, right?
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and there's patriarchy too. That yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) we're gonna have a whole other podcast (laughs) about that. If, um, I c- if I could just add, yeah, to Yeah, go for it. Uh, we talk about the shift from the geocentric to the heliocentric universe. Well, it didn't stop there, of course, because we now know that our solar system is just uh, sort of a run-of-the-mill solar system at a, a nondescript uh, corner of a galaxy among trillions of galaxies.
1: In an expanding universe. In yeah. an expanding <laughs> universe,
2: right. That's and so if you... If you uh, lost your testimony in Christianity under Galileo uh, because of the displacement. Where are you going to be now? <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean, if you lived <clears throat> back in the 1600s, I'm sure you would have given up on God a lot a long time ago, uh, yeah. based on your understanding yeah. of what of what God is a long time ago. And
2: yet, uh, it, the hope is that there are still Christian believers, there are still religious believers that are. Are comfortable in the universe as it is as this expanding universe with no no tightly defined center Uh, and anyway um, I what I see when I read through this and I'm listening to the conversation one of the the paths that I see forward is that uh, a religion such as the LDS LDS church might have to loosen the definitions might have to it, it become more comprehensive rather than uh, so narrow. tight and narrow.
1: Yeah, and I think the model of <coughs> in therapy is the yes and model. Mm-hmm. So is there a nuclea- nuclear family made up of someone who's assigned male at birth, someone who's assigned female at birth, and their children? Yes. And there are families of a variety of diverse relationship structures and types that also exist and are expansive.
3: Yeah, and I think like having this narrow belief, like you were saying, is like the universe is constantly changing. It is expansive, like we as humans are constantly changing and are expansive. And like holding tight to this belief that the church, the LDS church has never changed, has never expanded, brings about this confusion you were talking about before. Because throughout history of the LDS church, It has constantly been forced to expand and to change and adapt. Um, So to be in this place where they are unwilling to do that brings, I think, a lot of confusion for people because they are capable of doing it.
2: Thank you. It seems to me, it's okay if we pipe in. No, no. No, pipe in any time, please. Uh, Joseph Smith, uh, the founder of the faith, seemed to have a a vast mind And a comprehensive way of, of understanding reality. Uh, uh, he seems to me to be much more open-minded about the possibilities of the eternities and the Mm -hmm. openness of the universe and the possibilities of even, (coughs) even sexual relations, marriage, uh, much more than his successors. And there, there may be historical social reasons why people like Brigham Young and others had to clamp down or felt they had to do so. But it would be very interesting if Joseph Smith were here, what would he do?
1: He would potentially not recognize the faith. Right? Well, yeah. This yeah. is what we've been yeah. saying historically, right?
2: Yeah, he might not recognize the faith, but if he was faced with these kinds of social I- pressure, social pre- I mean, these issues that are now on the table, they're clearly scientific, they're scientifically respectable issues, mm-hmm. I think that he would be far more open-minded.
1: Yeah, and maybe excited that the world is just as open-minded <coughs> as he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Say, so This is what I was waiting for. I wish this was <laughs> happening in my day. And had, we had such limited understanding.
2: Yeah, but at the same time, um, I think that the history of religions show that there's, there's always going to be a dynamic of, I don't want to say conflict, but of dialogue in the sense that there's u- opposing voices that are on either on many sides of the issue, and then ultimately it it moves towards a more comprehensive synthesis, uh, to use that. And we're one of our problems now is that we're right in the middle of the turmoil of the you know the the anomalies. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um. Yeah. Please feel free to
0: interject at any time uh, as things come to you and stuff. Um. So uh, there was also significant doubt, um, even among the scientific community regarding the evidence that was presented by Galileo. Um, Some people doubted his telescope. They are like, this is an illusion or something like that that showed the craters on the moon, um, that showed that the the moon wasn't a perfect sphere, that it was imperfect in some ways. Um, uh, It also, his proof wasn't decisive, meaning um, it actually only proved one of two models that could be true. It either proved the Copernican um, heliocentric model, or it possibly proved, I believe it was Tycho Brahe's model, which his model essentially had everything revolving around the sun, and then the sun revolved around the Earth. And those two models, they're observationally equivalent, meaning that from our point on Earth, unless we, uh, until uh, there were much more precise devices invented later on, you can't tell the difference uh, between those two, whether one is reality or one is not.
2: But it decisively ruled out Aristotle. Yeah,
0: decisively ruled out Aristotle.
1: Which gives room for question and doubt, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest shift as well. We see it in the sciences ac- across the board, social sciences, hard sciences, where it, when you make that shift, then you even question the new thing that has come up because you go, wait a minute. Yeah. There is room for error. There is room for change. There is room for growth. Yeah. So it's this like, oh my gosh, if we don't have anything to grab onto what are we even doing
0: it's almost like let's prepare to be wrong for a while you know strap Mm -hmm. down and prepare to be wrong for i don't know 100 years (laughs) while we're trying to figure things out um, and learn more um in 2010 uh if you were old enough you probably remember this uh boyd k packer um this was in conference uh and i think i think That his statement was later changed or something like that but anyways this is what he said in conference some suppose that they were preset and cannot overcome what they feel are inborn tendencies toward the impure and unnatural not so why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone so one um, it is sad that as late as 2010 that that was still the position of the church Um, even if it wasn't official on their websites, that there were still leaders in the church that didn't understand that it could be um, something you're born with. Um, but as I was thinking about this quote, I realized something that I've... This quote has always made me frustrated. <laughs> but for the first time, I actually realized this kind of is a good quote. And <laughs> Stay with me on this. Um, Stay alone for the ride. It's that Elder Packer... Um, Arrived at the conclusion that God would never make someone gay by birth, because um, such a life, asking them asking them to live without a life partner, um, without marriage, would be too cruel. So, in in essence, he's kind of arriving at the same question a lot of us are: is why would Heavenly Father do that? (laughs) Um,
3: uh, Well, it doesn't
1: fit with the nuclear nuclear family plan. Yeah, instead of doubting salvation. Yeah.
0: he just he arrived at this inconsistency um and instead of doubting one of his assumptions he had doubted he d- doubted a different assumption um mm-hmm. instead of doubting the nuclear family assumption he had doubted um that uh, you could be born gay at all but i feel like we all um go on this same path of thinking of why would he do this <laughs> why would he do this to us and um I'm not queer, so I can't say what uh, a queer person might feel. I have read accounts, and it seems that a common theme that happens for a queer member of the church is they think that question, why would he do this? Why am I this way? And um, I don't know. For me, it
1: it it wasn't ever a question. I knew divinely that my sexual orientation, being bisexual, is an innate part of who I am has been and will That's be. That's great. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I, mean, I did question and have to reconcile, well, then how do I put that in the context of the faith that I'm living? Yeah. Right? So I definitely, being a queer person, my the assumption of, right, sexuality wasn't a question because I, tr- I knew the truth to that. So I did have to question the other assumption. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I would say for me, I took a different path than Dr. Bagley of questioning, yeah, like how if I was divinely created and God created me this way, how can I not fit into this belief of the nuclear family? Um, And I didn't question it like Dr. Bagley did um, until I think I had this realization of, until I had this realization of, like, if God loves me and did create me this way, he would want me to be happy. For this disparity of that, uh, Elder Packer had right of God loves us to be without someone we love for our entire lives would be cruel and like I do not believe in a God that would make someone a specific way and then tell them not to ever act on it when my love for someone else doesn't harm anyone and it doesn't it's not bad it is pure and and it is in my own words holy and beautiful yeah for sure
1: and it's a celebration of self.
3: Definitely, of the divine
1: within.
0: Mm-hmm. I just wanna let, if you have anything other to s- more to say, I want to let it here on. I love it. Um, the uh, media and popular science—they really love to play up the trial of Galileo as this like science versus religion, and uh, science triumphed over religion for the first time. Um, uh, I, they'd really love to play that up. I mean, if you, if you hear about the Trial of Galileo from any popular science source, that's often how they talk about it. Um, I don't know if you know about this book. This is called Gay Rights in the Mormon Church. You both yes. know about it? Okay. Mm-hmm. This book is awesome. <laughs> I read the whole thing to prepare for it, and I am really impressed by what Gregory Prince did. I mean, like 50,000 documents he went through. Uh, to as many
1: queer people do. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> not, I'm sure he like was not the first. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's commitment. Yeah. Um,
0: he has this quote, uh, there's um, uh, some background on the quote. There was this event that he refers to as the kiss and it was back in 2003. Uh, or no, sorry, 2009, right after Prop 8 in California, uh, Derek Jones and Matt Ahn were walking home. They passed through Main Street Plaza in Salt Lake City. Um, uh, the report is is that On gave Jones a peck on the cheek. Church employees said otherwise that the behavior crossed a line of impropriety. There's no video evidence or anything, so it's just a um, he said, she said, kind of they said situation. Um, but uh, the The officers, um, the security guards, approached the two, handcuffed both, wrestled Jones to the ground. Afterwards, in protest, there was um, something called a kiss-in. There were actually two of them, where a whole bunch of people from all over the Salt Lake Valley got together, kissed their loved ones, um, not excessively. It was just you know smooches on the cheek or stuff like that. But um, it then spurred the first meetings between. Um, LGBTQ uh, representatives of the community in Salt Lake City and representatives of the church, um, which I think is a great thing to come out of it. Those conversations that happen. Um, Brandy Balkin, this is yes, right. Okay, Brandy Balkin had just become the executive director of Equality Utah, and this is one of the quotes that um, Brandy said about uh, the situation and the talks. Um, There was also a discussion about how the national focus on the state of Utah wasn't helping things. Nationally, people love the story of conflict between LDS and LGBT. Mm -hmm. They are hungry for it. What people don't want to hear is that Mormons are good parents who love their kids, who are working to understand this much like Catholics are, much like evangelicals are. People want to paint Mormons as an extraordinary, difficult, secretive, and hostile community. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think it's true. Um, it goes without saying there are people like that in the Mormon church that are hostile. Um, but um, what I wanted to ask is, in your experience, how have you come across ways in which it isn't LDS versus LGBT? It's just people trying to understand each other. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it, maybe it is more hostile than I think. I, I mean, it's definitely hostile in certain places and certain people. Yeah, but
1: internally, externally, right? We've each had to wrestle with that hostility, that confusion. And so we've seen bridges being built um, in a variety of fronts. So parents trying to understand their children, siblings trying to understand one another, larger systemic organizations being curious about the lived experiences and ways that they can provide space and safety for the community. So we are seeing bridges being built. They're just slowly being built. <laughs> one. One little bridge part at a time, one yeah. little log at a time.
3: Yeah, and I, s- I think we, s- we see these bridges being built on this like intimate and personal level, mm-hmm. right? Like we see it with families and siblings and friends, even, but we're really lacking to see this bridge being made on larger systematic levels, specifically within the LDS church. And I think that's like where a lot of people are waiting for these things to be created. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, I love that visual because then they're saying like, We've come as far as we can come without support, Mm -hmm. right? Without Mm -hmm. systemic support to help us keep going, right? So we have built this bridge as close together as possible, but it will break unless we have the support of a bigger system, right? Of the queer community at large, of the LDS church at large, right? So there is still a gap.
0: Thank you. Um, One thing that, became clear as we were learning about Galileo was his motivations. He wasn't trying to tear down the Catholic Church. He was just trying to talk about the truth he'd discovered. Um, and uh, the Catholic Church felt obviously threatened by him for lots of different ways. But when you really look looked at what he was trying to do, he wasn't trying to destroy the church or anything like that. Um, and I think we can say the same for queer people, uh, queer members of the church. They're not trying to destroy it. They're not trying to tear it down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, they and all of us <coughs> are just trying to figure out where do they fit in, into the model? And do we need to recreate a new model so that they, there is a place for them? I don't know, thoughts?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're saying, this is me, Yeah. right? This is me, this is my love, this is my family. Where do we fit? Can we fit? Mm-hmm. Is there a place for us? in God's unconditional love and in the church that supports his unconditional love.
2: I'm troubled with the very idea that we have to do that, you know, that we have to find a place. I mean, it should it should be self-evident to me. And we, how can we limit love or God's love, right? Um, but anyway, we, we, we have to do that because that's what we're, we're faced with, but you know,
1: but his love is limitless and boundless. No. And uh, if we can find a way to administer the church in a way that makes space for that, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the, what will fill the gap.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, th- I th- I'm sorry, one one yeah, thing I about Galileo, <coughs> one of the great ironies, I think, of the whole Galileo situation is that today, the Catholic Church embraces everything that Galileo taught.
3: Mm.
2: I had the opportunity when I was a student to go to a conference at the Vatican on uh, cosmology and general general relativity, and I went out to the Pope's summer summer residence at Castel Gandolfo. There's also a beautiful observatory there, mm. and the uh, Vatican the head Vatican astronomer uh, hosted. That meeting, and so it's like, okay, it's been four hundred years, um, and we don't see the seams between the, the the two anymore. The church has embraced, and and much like uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, took Aristotle and baptized his metaphysics and his philosophy into a Christian theology, which still is the official th- theology of the Catholic Church, we now have um, the the cosmology of Galileo fits seamlessly within church uh, doctrine and church teachings. Um, anyway.
1: And we will see, as we have seen, Contemporary families fit into the gospel of Jesus Christ right. as administered by the LDS Church.
2: Right. I hope,
1: as we all do. Right. <laughs>
2: right. But it it isn't a it isn't a um, it isn't easy, and it's not a. a, a it's a, unfortunately it's a battleground right now, and that's hard.
1: It's it's hard, especially when there are casualties. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> unfortunately, that's the reality that Chloe and I sit in hour by hour, day mm-hmm. by day, week by week, is that when these intense things are said about the queer community on their behalf, on their behalf, not for their behalf, right, yeah. then there is a casualty of marriages and families and lives.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah it, and it makes it seem like, like for these queer people who are trying to reconcile their place in the church, like, right now, it feels like you have to choose one or the other. Like There's no way to make both work. And for a lot of people, that's hard because they do have the strong belief and love of God and want the same things as their heterosexual cisgender counterparts. But the church doesn't have a place for that. And a lot of people are receiving their own revelation saying that it is good and that it is something that God has given them, like this this blessing, I guess, of being queer. Um, yeah, yeah, so will there be a place for them? Yeah, we will see.
0: Um, I'm really glad that you brought up um, the point about casualties. Mm -hmm. Um, In the comparison that I made uh, with the two of them, and trying to bring about this point that it's very nuanced. Um, It's not necessarily science versus religion, progressives versus oppressors kind of thing. Um, Mm But there was uh, one concession that I made in, um, in my essay. And the concession was um, that both the historical Catholic Church and the modern LDS Church were in positions of power. Um, the historical Catholic Church was in a position of power over Galileo. Um, and the modern LDS Church has power Um, Whether it wants to say it does or not, it does. It has power over the lives of uh, its LGBTQ members. Um, uh, Just to illustrate what I mean by this power, in 1600, the Catholic Church burned a man named Bruno um, for heresy. And one of the points, there were lots of points of heresy. It wasn't just uh, the Copernican model. He was doing a bunch of other (laughs) stuff. But one of the points of the heresy was that he supported the Copernican heliocentric model of the universe. Um, and so what that translated to is that at the t- at the time of Galileo there' was a fear of reprisal and a retribution against Galileo for supporting these things and um, so much so that he even uh, to avoid worse punishment, uh, he recanted his uh, his testimony <laughs> to say um, of uh, the Copernican model uh, so that he would could just, live in house arrest for the rest of his life. Can I interject real quick? Yeah, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong on anything. Giordano
2: Bruno um, n- not only em- embraced the Copernican model, but he also asked a dangerous question for which he was, um, uh, tried for heresy, he said, how can we limit God to creating just this one universe? He was teaching that God might have created an unlimited number of others, uh, systems of you know star systems or what we would call them today other universes, and so that just offended the church right and left and so here we have an individual with an, a comprehensive view and an expansive view, uh, and he 's condemned for it
1: and so then we would ask right the question why would we limit god 's expansiveness in regard to the the family mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. And I think that question does get people in trouble, air quotes with my fingers, right, mm-hmm. in trouble with being students at BYU, with being professors at BYU, with being involved in the church in any way, right? You are shunned for heresy, not burned, but shunned. Yeah,
2: yeah they can't burn us. <laughs> and and uh, in the Catholic Church, the, the one of the chief differences in power today mm-hmm. is that, uh, at least in the LDS Church, people can go elsewhere and not be killed. But in the Catholic Church, you know, you, c- you would be punished as a heretic or whatever. Yeah, so. Um, <coughs>
0: similarly to the, the history that preceded Galileo with the Catholic Church, there's a history that has preceded um, today as far as the Church's treatment of LGBTQ individuals. Um, no secret, the electroshock therapy in the 1970s, even though it wasn't the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that was conducting that, they were often uh, recommending it or sending people to BYU to go get it.
1: As was a common practice. Yeah,
0: w- yeah, common practice, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, witch hunts in the 70s as well that were searching out gay students and taking them out of BYU. Board K. Packer's statement that we read that was very hurtful. Um... The social media witch social, hunts. Yeah, down. social media witch hunts, the 2015 policy change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that, for me, uh, awakened it for all of me. Some I hadn't really thought about these issues too much before, but the thing that woke it up for me was, in 2020, the honor code change. Um, I felt like that was an instance of just, even if you're not going to change the policy, there's so many things they could have done to... Not make it feel like they were changing the policy, and then immediately go back on that. I just, I during that time, I saw a lot of there were a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of hurt, just people <laughs> um, that uh, it could have all been avoided. I think if someone up in the decision-making booth, wherever it was, had paused for a second to think about if we change this wording, what is it, what is it gonna do? Um, so obviously a lot of history behind those things. And the question I wanna ask for you two as as clinicians and as people that deal with this in and out every day, um, I wanna talk about the, the fear aspect that um, LGBTQ members face, uh, being or trying to be members of the church, trying to be part of it, trying to be included. Um, can you describe it all fear or fear of reprisal or I don't know, any of those similar emotions that you guys, um, you don't have to share personal experiences and you don't have to share anyone's specific experience that you've worked with, but generalities I would love to understand from you guys.
3: That is a lofty question. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think like the most palpable way you see this fear is at BYU. This fear of being outed mm. um, by would, your friends.
0: What so. would that mean? Uh, if so, uh, what I mean by that is, let's say we have a hypothetical individual, they're outed. What does that person then experience being at BYU?
3: Yeah, I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I graduated BYU in 2017, um, and at the time I was, like, my last semester, I was out at BYU, and I was dating this girl secretly, right? And my roommates knew, my brother knew, and we all wanted to go on a group date. And one of the people who were going on this group date told my brother, if your sister comes on the group date with their partner, we are gonna report them to the honor code. Mm. And I had one semester left. I was literally, graduating was like in the finish line. Um, And in that moment, I was so scared of like, will my degree get taken away? Will I get kicked out of BYU? Like I am so close and this one person can take it all away for me. Um, And I think that is the fear that a lot of BYU students face is being turned into the honor code by anybody. I know people who get turned into the honor code from their best friends, from their parents, from their bishops, from their partners even. Like um, this fear of losing... Everything. But, yeah, literally everything. Um, and I think you also see that like just in the congregation in general, like we call it the bishop roulette, right? Like if you have a great bishop, who is supportive, who is affirming, then you're gonna be okay. But not everyone gets that. Mm-hmm. Some people get bishops who tell them they need to go see a therapist um, because they need to be straight or that they shouldn't act on, the feelin- on their feelings or like their family's temple ceiling is literally at stake if they come out. Mm. Um,
0: what do you mean by that? Can you expand on that
3: one? Yeah, I, I know a couple of people who who say I can't act on my feelings of being gay because it breaks my temp- my family's temple ceiling and because of that my family won't get to be together forever because of my choice to act on my feelings that's my selfish choice right my selfish choice to act on these feelings yeah, at
0: least to my understanding that's not even the right doctrine <laughs> that, that but just it is the practice doctrine yeah. yeah
3: and then
1: also at the congregation and stake level <clears throat> I it's now a place where like if I am not deemed as worthy by my stake leadership. I'm not allowed in certain spaces. Mm. Mm. So I'm not allowed to go to certain speaking events or to work with youth, right? I have to be vetted. Gotcha. (coughs) And I... That feeling of constantly being vetted would be really, really hard. Humiliating. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely humiliating and gives no space for like the lived experience of someone to say, I'm a dynamic human that faces challenges of opposition and is gonna respond to them in ways that are healthy and unhealthy. And so because my ways that are unhealthy are deemed as unworthy Mm -hmm. by you, another human, who is an equal to me, right, then I'm not allowed in those spaces.
0: Chloe, can I ask you a follow-up question? Of course. Um, I'm imagining someone listening to this podcast right now um, and uh, thinking, uh, well, Chloe was dating someone. uh, They were breaking the honor code. Um, Uh, I don't want to get into that. What I do want to get into is um, uh, queer members that are, uh, are queer students at BYU, it's possible that they could be afraid even if they're not dating someone, they're keeping the honor code totally, but are they still afraid of being outed? What does that What does that look like?
3: Um, again, only can talk for personal experience, yeah. but I would say yes. And I think especially before the honor code, like wording changed, this was a really big fear because if someone knows that you are queer, they can report you to the honor code for quote unquote, acting on your feelings, right? Which could look like me giving another female a hug, could be me acting on feelings, and who can deny that, right? Whether or not I am actually acting on these feelings Mm -hmm. and they are just a friend, or someone else believes that it is something more. So I think that's a lot of the fear of, anybody can interpret your actions in any way and yeah. that is scary because i have no control over how, how people s- see me and what they how interpret. they choose to
0: interpret what
3: exactly what could
0: be very harmless and just friendly <laughs> exactly.
1: and then if we bring that into gender right yeah. Yeah. and how intense that gender discrimination can be when it comes to like wearing pants wearing like more masculine or more feminine clothing mm-hmm. wearing high heels if you're assigned male at birth right yeah. these things that can be for your mental health and well-being the most affirming action you can take, and then to be turned in or reprimanded for that, again, humiliating and ex- mm. like exceptionally dami- damaging mm. to that individual yeah. and to the community.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Any other thoughts on this before we go on to another part? All right. Thank you for being vulnerable, by the way, and sharing personal experience. Um, uh, thank you. Of course. Um. Uh, let's see. Let me check the time. How much time we got left? All okay, right, we gotta wrap this up um, pretty soon. But um, the last, I wanted to ask kind of two, two last questions that I think are our takeaways.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, for both of these questions, um, let's just assume that the church's stance on gay marriage isn't changing for the foreseeable future. It doesn't change within our lifetimes, um, or never, but. For our lifetimes, that's, I think, what we can think about right now. Let's say it doesn't change. What can the church as an institution, and then I'll also ask a separate question, what can the church as a people, what can we as a people, do to better help our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters? So let's say doctrine doesn't change, what do we do in the meantime? Um, What can the church do in the meantime to better form bridges, like you were talking about, and what can people do to form bridges?
1: So we did take a couple of notes on these because there are a couple of points we want to bring up. Um, A big thing is asking the community what they need, right? We can't blanket say this is what the church as an organization needs to do for all the LGBTQ community, Mm -hmm. but can continue to check in with the community and make adjustments where possible.
0: When we say the community, should we be talking about like, specific the provo LGBTQ community. No just the queer community
1: at large. Oh just the
0: LGBTQ yeah, community we're at large. organizational Okay. Organizationally, right? we're talking all across the board.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Keep going. I think you can still check in. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And then what is so powerful about that is the church has access to resources. And the queer community is a marginalized community that doesn't have the same access to resources as other in other communities. And so if the church can fill that gap um with equity, right? Mm-hmm. And attend to those needs with equity, then we do provide a more equal playing ground for all people. I think that's a really powerful way that the church can be involved in the community. Awesome.
3: Yeah, and I would say another way that like organizationally how the church can can build these bridges with the LGBTQ community is really by supporting and encouraging families to follow the example of Christ, which at its core is love, right? Love unconditionally to affirm people um, because it has so much power and influence, like you mentioned before. And if from the top we are hearing these messages of we love everyone and we don't judge them, um, I think that really can help build these bridges in lots of different ways. Yeah, and this is where people ask
1: how, right? How do I love people when what they're doing or what they're saying about who they are directly goes against um, doctrine or policies of the church, right? And so we brought up the word affirming, Mm -hmm. because it's it's saying, I can hold the space of belief and practice of the church in whatever way is meaningful to me and affirm that when someone says, I'm a bisexual woman or I'm a queer person of color, right? That we can say like yes and i see you and i can affirm your identities that you've shared with me and hold space for you as well Mm -hmm.
0: right Mm -hmm. any thoughts dr huber
1: yeah um
2: i can only speak well i can't speak for the church obviously but as a member i will continue to advocate to affirm to do what i do as a professor uh i will i will do my best to not support any enforced binary uh, absolute absolute or absolutist position from the church uh, in my interaction with people. I will not be offensive in doing this. I will try not to be anyway, but see somebody like me, I, I have to be free to be myself too. You know, in my, I was raised to be open minded. About love and about to uh, naturally embracing and everything. And so that's what i what I said, the I- whole idea that we have to create a space for people who don't f- fit is deeply troubling to me because you know i I identify with the Christianity of Jesus Christ. It was all embracing. Bring to me everyone that wants to love and be loved. Um, and I mean, that's what I, that's, the, see, one of the problems, and I, I'm just going to say it, um, the church's authority and doctrine is, wonder, is unidirectional, comes down from the top. And, I, and I, I think that this, what we're talking about here is a kind of a movement that will hopefully, uh, I don't want to say force, but will invite the higher-ups eventually to listen and eventually to make the necessary changes or have the necessary revelations or whatever, however institutionally this change. We could put it in terms of, um, we could put it th- have this paradigm shift or this revolution. Um, I think I, I think that's all I need to say. Yeah, by
1: listening, learning from one another, right, and loving, right? As Richard Osler has taught us that beautiful um, equation, right? Right. Just listen, affirm identities, hold space for one another, learn when our power and privilege maybe have not given us or allowed us the space to learn, right? Learn from one another, trust one another, mm-hmm. and then love unconditionally as Christ taught us to. Go to the one... If they can't come to us,
0: um, you may have just answered my last question, but I do feel it's important, and I'm okay with being in trouble with them for going <laughs> a little over. But, um, my second question is what can we, as people, not as an institution, but can we, what can we, as everyday people, as we come across LGBTQ members of the church, maybe we never meet one, <laughs> um, or know that y- we do, or know, yeah, or, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> or, or know that we do that? Let me correct there that. There you go, you know, um, uh, know that we do, um. What do we do as people to better support um, and love our brothers and sisters?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely to echo off what Dr. Bagley is saying, that really this idea that Richard Osler has put out there of listen, learn, love is so powerful because we don't know what people are going through and we need to just be there to hear them, Mm -hmm. to sit with them, to be with them. Um, and then to ask ourselves, like, what, what do we not know and how can we know more? And then love at the end of the day, right? Christ said we need to love. And that I think is probably the easiest and hardest thing for all of us to do is to accept people for who they are, for where they're at, even if it contradicts our beliefs and our ideas.
0: Awesome. Um. Okay, I'm going to end with a quick passage and then we'll be done. The passage is from, uh, I've been talking about Ben Chalali a lot because I love his <laughs> book. I've just read it and I'm like obsessed with it right now. It's but, He's um, It's just oh. a quick passage that is essentially just um, a summarization of scripture. It's from the prologue. Um, Rhoda was a young woman in the Church of Jesus Christ in the meridian of time who likely would have been lost to history had she not answered a knock at the door. Peter, the president of the church, had just been miraculously freed from prison by an angel. Only Peter, the guards, and the heavens knew Peter was free. He arrived at a house where many of the disciples were worshiping and knocked on the door of the gate. Rhoda heard the knock, and she, quote, came to hearken. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. But no one believed her. How could she be right? Peter was in prison and they all knew that. Obviously Rhoda, this young Christian woman, had to be mistaken. First they told her, thou art mad, but she constantly affirmed that it was even so. When she persisted, the people dismissed what she was saying. They tried to fit her her experience into their paradigm of what they knew to be true, that it couldn't be the real Peter. Then said they, it is his angel. They shifted from disbelieving her account to rationalizing away what she knew she had heard. With this dismissing and rationalizing, while this dismissing and rationalizing was happening inside, Peter was still standing at the door knocking. Finally, someone realized that whoever was outside was still knocking, quote, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. When they saw with their own eyes what Rhoda had been telling them all along, they believed. Her words didn't convince them, but their personal experience did. I think the point of this story is that, well, twofold. One, we need to listen. Um, we need to listen to Rhoda, who needs who is telling us what's happening. But we also um, need to realize that while we're having this discussion, there are people knocking at the door, uh, LGBTQ members of the church knocking on the door, waiting to be let in. So, thanks everybody
1: for Thank coming you. today. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can end by saying like, let them in. Yeah, let them, <laughs> let them in. <laughs> yeah, exactly.